Our scripture reading this morning is John chapter 7, verse 53 through 8, 11. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. pinch hitter this morning, and uh, we're going to be looking at that same passage uh, for our sermon now. I don't know if you were ever on social media. I have mixed feelings about social media, but I'm on there from time to time, and mostly I'm looking for something funny to make me laugh, and, uh, and I come across this meme all the time, and every time I see it, it makes me laugh. I don't know if you can see that, but uh, what has happened is the, uh, the line painters have painted right over a dead possum. And uh, they, they put this on there, and it's the winner of the uh, Not My Job Award. So that's Not My Job Award. And I, that just makes me laugh. I was looking these pictures up this morning, and my wife goes, you should just take pictures uh, around the house and put them up. And... Uh, I think that was a dig at me. I, I was why was it you? Oh no, it wasn't. <laughs> no, it wasn't. Uh, here I got a couple of these. Just so this one. So the plumber has has artistically bent the copper around the clock that you could literally just go right. Like it was more work to go around that clock. Uh, it's unbelievable. This one here, this one for those who are OCD, if you can see that the, uh, the, the, the great, I don't know what you call that thing, the manhole cover has been put on uh, wantonly. And uh, don't you just want to walk out there and, and rotate it? Doesn't that just let that sit in and kind of bug you for a little bit? And then this, this is my favorite one. That is the silhouette of a murdered squirrel. And uh, that's almost artistic. I mean, I, that's like a, a Banksy doodle on a wall there. That's, uh, that's fantastic. So the Not My Job Award, in this passage this morning, we're going to give out a Not My Job Award. But we're also going to look at people who are taking on a job that isn't theirs, that they shouldn't be doing. You would think they were in the union or something. But we're going to be looking at what I think is one of the best passages in Scripture for giving us a snapshot 
of the heart of Jesus. I just love this story. So just really quick, we're in the book of John, and you know, a couple weeks ago, Pastor Phil uh, did his sermon from uh, chapter 3, uh, John chapter 3 on, for our outdoor service, and the, the wonderful story of, of Nicodemus, the religious leader, coming uh, to Jesus in the night, and that's where we get the whole, uh, you must be born again. Uh, passage, maybe one of the most famous passages. That's where we have, for God so loved the world. And I think Jesus continues this theme, this idea in this passage this morning. So the book of John is written so that you would know the signs and wonders of Jesus. And up until this point, he has already done some pretty amazing things. He has turned water into wine He is beginning to call his disciples, and he's getting large, large followings. Uh, If you remember the feeding of the 5,000, the reason he was feeding 5,000 is because all these people had gathered to hear him teach. He's getting a large following. He had healed the the, the paralytic, the famous story. He's claiming to be God. He says, I am Referencing the Old Testament name that God gives himself in the book of Exodus. I am. Signs and wonders. Now on the other end, there are this group of people that keep popping up in the, in the story of Jesus. And it's the, the Pharisees and the scribes. And, and basically to kind of lump them into one basket, they're the, the religious leaders of the time. They are uh, the people that the Jewish people look to as the standard of what you should be as a Jew. And probably if we were to uh, give them a likeness of something today that would be akin to the Pharisees, honestly, it would probably be the Taliban. They go around and they're enforcing their rules and making sure everybody obeys the rules. We want everybody to obey the rules. And that's what they were about. Well, Jesus comes in and he is upsetting their apple cart. Jesus is preaching a message that seems to run contrary to what the Pharisees are doing. People are no longer flocking to the Pharisees. They're, they're flocking to Jesus. So he's, he's messing everything up. He's ruining their power structure that they have uh, you know, a tight grip on. In, in uh, Israel. So they come this morning. Because it says it's in the morning. And Jesus sets up at the temple. And I can picture him kind of on, on some stone steps. And he sits down. And he begins to teach. And the Pharisees, what you see is they've already tried to arrest him a couple times in the book of John. They want to get this guy out. They want to shut him up. He's messing everything up. And so they have this gambit that they, that they have manufactured in this passage. Now, if, if you're a chess player, when you say the, uh, the word a gambit, basically what a gambit is, is when you sacrifice one of your pieces, generally a pawn, to gain a strategic advantage. Well, that's exactly what the Pharisees are doing in this passage. I'm just going to read it again just to refresh just the first part. It says... They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, 
and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placed her in the midst. They said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? What do you say? The Pharisees have the law on their side. They really do. The law clearly states that adulterers, I mean, this goes right back to the basic Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not commit adultery, which is thou shalt not be unfaithful uh, to your spouse or in this time period also, uh, or to your fiancé. You should be, not be unfaithful to your spouse or your fiancé. Pharisees have the law on their side. And there's a crowd, too, because they want a spectacle. They want to take this guy down. So my guess is they kind of waited. And you could see him kind of back in the corner waiting while all the people gather, all the people gather. And then they're going to they're gonna spring their trap. And they have brought this, this woman. Now, if Jesus condemns her, then he sacrifices this message of grace and forgiveness that, that he is preaching. If Jesus condemns her, which would be to condemn her to death of stoning, he would also be in trouble with the Roman overlord. So Rome is controlling Israel at this time, but they have allowed uh, the Israelites to kind of rule and govern themselves as long as they pay their taxes. But they were not allowed uh, to sentence anyone to death. So I think this is kind of like a side hustle for them. Maybe they could also get the Romans to intervene uh, on their behalf and deal with Jesus. And also if Jesus condemns her, then he sacrifices, if, excuse me, if he doesn't condemn her, then he sacrifices his commitment to the law. So he's really stuck between a rock and a hard place. If he condemns her, he's wrong. If he doesn't condemn her, He's wrong. As Jesus, if you remember uh, elsewhere in in Matthew, he says that I did not come to uh, abolish the law. He came to fulfill the law. So they've got this wonderful trap set up for him. There's a flaw. There's a couple flaws in their trap. First of all, there are people that aren't there. Notice the people that are not there mentioned in this passage. Where are the witnesses of the said crime? Where are the witnesses of the act of adultery that this woman committed according to the law? When I'm talking about the law, we're talking about the first five books of the Old Testament, also known as the Torah. That's what we mean by the law. The law requires that there are at least two witnesses who actually witness almost together the same thing. Like they have to be there and they have to corroborate their stories. So it kind of creates, a, honestly, a really hard scenario to convict anyone of a crime. And the fact that the, the Pharisees have come and they have said that we, we have caught this woman in the act of adultery, it smacks of a, of a setup. It smacks of a setup. They are setting this woman up to use her. We also learn in the the law that if you were witnessing 
uh, or about to witness a crime or an infraction on the law that you had a moral obligation to try and intervene and dissuade from that act being perpetrated. They didn't do that. They stood by. Where are the witnesses? The other glaring thing, that honestly I had read this story a hundred times and it never dawned on me. Where's the lover? Where's the lover? Now we can deduce based on the punishment that the Pharisees are requiring, looking at the Old Testament, that this woman was most likely engaged to be married And in this situation, she was uh, found to be unfaithful to her fiancé, which is what would exact this specific punishment of stoning. We see this in Deuteronomy chapter 22, if you want to check me on that. But where is the man? Because according to Deuteronomy 22, they are both to be stoned. They are both to be stoned. This society, a lot like many societies today, have different standards for how they treat men and women. I experienced this for the first time when I was in Guatemala, at least in a way that, I, that it really woke me up. I, spent, I took a, a summer off in college and, and uh, to my parents' chagrin and went to Guatemala to to go take Spanish school and travel around. And while I was traveling around, I, I met these people at an orphanage and ended up moving into the orphanage and working there and just, and just loved it. There were a lot of women there. And, and the women, oh, that's, that's her son. Like, oh, you mean adopted son? No, 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 that, that's her son. What had been happening is that in, in Guatemala, if a woman was raped, she was pariah. She would be disowned by... By her family, she would be blamed for children out of, out of wedlock. It was all her fault, and so these women had no place to go, and so they would come to the orphanage and they would live there and they would work there. But the system had no recourse for these women. It was always on the side of the male. And I think you see this here as well. The, the Pharisees who are so wrapped up in, the, in their, uh, their culture, they've let the man get off scot-free. And they have brought this woman before Jesus. Now, Jesus is looking at the Pharisees also. And not only are they missing some key people in their, in their claim, in their charge, their cause is not righteous. Their cause is not righteous. First of all, they could have done this privately. They didn't need to make a spectacle of it. But they didn't want justice. They wanted a public lynching. That's what this is. This is a public lynching of this woman. They are not looking out for the healing and restoration of one of their countrymen, they are using her as a pawn. Remember we described their gambit? A gambit is when, is when you are willingly sacrifice a piece 
to gain a strategic advantage. They are willing to sacrifice this woman and her life just to gain a strategic advantage, just to set a trap for Jesus. Pay no attention to this woman and who she is. This woman, the pawn. Don't we always see the powerful taking advantage of the weak? Don't we see the powerful using the weak and the poor all of the time to gain strategic advantage? Without wading too deep into politics, right now what you have on the border, you have everybody is up in arms because the the, the refugee children or the immigrant children are being pulled away from their families, right? It's horrible. But politics steps in, and on one side or on the other side, it doesn't matter. They are all using these children to gain strategic advantage over one another. They're using these children to raise money. They're using uh, these children to, to pass whatever bill or legislation. They're using them. They're using them. This is what happens all the time. There will be a, a tragedy or, or uh, uh, you know, an issue will be raised. And everybody uses it to raise money for their political candidate. They use things. They're pawns. This passage is fantastic because we get to see Jesus doing, doing his thing. And there's a little drama built into this. So just a reminder, they said, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses, he commands us to stone such women. What do you say? And this is where you expect Jesus to have this awesome retort and just, Get him, you know, which he does often. But what he does here is he, he doesn't say anything. Right? He just kind of kneels down and he starts writing something in the sand. And this is one of those, this is one of those questions that when, you, when I go to heaven, I want to go to Jesus and say, hey man, what were you writing? Yeah, I'm going to say, hey man. Hey dude, I'm a mess. What, what did you write in John chapter 8? What were you writing on the ground? And he might be, well, you just may never know. I can hear him saying something like that. What some people, a lot of theologians, they believe that he would have written something like this. In this passage in Jeremiah 17, it says, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth. For they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. So, so maybe, he, maybe he writes a message that they can see because they're standing right there. I don't know. But it's a wonderful picture of Jesus taking a beat, breathing for a minute. Because we don't think about Jesus being angry. We, don't pick, we picture him stoic, Richard Harris, Jesus, just kind of floating around everywhere, speaking in monotone. But I imagine Jesus was angry. Because these Pharisees are leading his people astray. These Pharisees are abusing his creation. 
And I, I, I picture him needing to breathe and count, count, you know, down to one from ten and just. We don't think about that. But we do see Jesus experiencing a huge spectrum of emotion in the Bible. It says, this they said to test him that they might have charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger in the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, that him who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. It says, then at once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. What's great is what Jesus does here is he uses the law against them. The very law that they are using to bring a charge against her, to damn her, to end her life, he uses against them. Because when you look at the law, that passage when he says, he says, he who is without sin cast the first stone, the witnesses are the ones that are supposed to cast the first stone. When the woman has, uh, when they have brought the witnesses and, the, and everyone has decided, yes, we're going to listen to these witnesses, she is guilty, they are the ones who are to cast the first stone. Well, they're not there. As far as we know, they are not there. And if you want to judge her by the law, if the Pharisees want to judge her by the law, then they must judge themselves by the law as well. In Galatians 3, it says, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. What does that mean? It means you break one law, you've broken them all. Because we have a problem. They have a problem. Jesus' standard for us is perfection, is holiness, is purity. And Pastor Phil has been in the book of Exodus for months going through all that God required for the people, how to live, how to be right with God, how to be right with man, what worship should look like. He's very particular. God is very particular. And so when Jesus says, let he who is without sin cast the first stone, I keep reverting to, to the, the, the translation I grew up with, so I'm sorry, I keep changing the ESV there. But what he's essentially saying is, fine. You're going to judge her by the law? I'm going to judge you by the law. I'm going to judge you by the law. And you're going to be found wanting as well. Jesus says, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. So you get this picture that maybe the, the older, wiser people in that crowd who, who had probably, they, they, saw, they saw the lynching coming and they've, they've picked up stones and rocks and, and they're ready to stone this woman. 
And as it dawns on them what Jesus has said, I just see them one by one dropping their rock and walking away with their head down, ashamed. His response to the accusers was to throw the law back in their face. But his response to the woman is different. Now, we keep saying woman, and Jesus calls her woman in this passage. And I think in our day and age, in our context, when we say, hey, woman, it, it seems derogatory. It seems like we're being disrespectful or, or harsh. And in this context, it wasn't so. In fact, Jesus uh, calls his own mother woman many times. And so if that if that is if you're bumping on that, I'm sorry. That's just what's in the in the passage there. But Jesus does not mean any disrespect. It says Jesus stood up and said to her, "Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you?" She said, "No one, Lord." And Jesus said, "Neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on sin no more. Now, Jesus does not disregard her sin. He doesn't say that sin is not a sin anymore. That's not what he says. He says, I don't condemn you. I condemn you. Notice the different response. He condemns the Pharisees and the scribes. He doesn't condemn her. In James, it says that That God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Over and over again, we see in the life of Jesus that if you go through it, all his harsh words, they're for the religious leaders. They're not for the people. He gives grace to the people. He gives grace to this woman. Jesus exercises his sovereignty to forgive. Only he has the power to forgive. And that's what he does here with this woman. He does not disregard it. But he is sovereign over sin. So Jesus this morning gets the it's not my job award. He gets the it's not my job award. Because if you read, if you jump back to John chapter 3, and you read John chapter 3, verse 17, it comes right after the for God so loved the world verse. It says, for he, that is Jesus, did not come into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Jesus did not come to condemn. He came to save. Now, I'm not telling you there is no condemnation for the unbeliever. The Bible is clear on that, and if you continue to read in John chapter 3, you will see that Jesus is very clear on that as well. But not yet. The condemnation is coming, but not yet. And so this morning, as the church, just like in this moment Jesus does not condemn, it is not our job to condemn this world. It is not our job to go around condemning those around us for their sins. Do you know whose job that is? It's the Holy Spirit's job. You know who brings conviction? The Holy Spirit. I can't make anyone feel bad for their sin. 
The Holy Spirit can bring that. I'm not saying don't preach the truth. I'm not saying don't preach the word. I'm not saying don't say that sin is sin. But so often the church is all about defaming and condemnation. We are to be about healing and restoring. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians that God has given us, that is his church, the ministry of reconciliation. That's our job. As the church, our job is the ministry of reconciliation. What does that mean? It means that human beings and God, there's a rift because of sin. That relationship is broken. The church's job is to reconcile the relationship that humanity has with God. That's it. That's what we're here to do. God's going to do the condemnation later. Our job is to reconcile and to do everything we can. We want to be about healing and restoration. It is not our job to condemn the world. It is our job to save the world through Jesus. My last point this morning. If you ever experienced mortal peril, this woman finds herself in mortal peril. This situation for her is life and death. And it hangs on the edge of a knife in that moment. Do you know that without Jesus and his work on the cross and belief in him, that you are in mortal peril? That what you believe and who you believe in is life and death. And my fear is this morning. Some of us have been in church our whole lives and have never truly appreciated what we've been saved from. We've never truly realized I am dead and lost and damned without the work of Jesus on the cross. Have you fully dealt with the gravity of your situation. And if you have, and you've experienced that, that leaves us with one emotion, it's gratitude. And I think if there's anything that should define us as a people, when we come together, us as a people in the world should be a people who are grateful. Who are grateful for what Jesus had done. That woman was guilty. He does not deny that. But even when we were dead in our transgressions and sins, he made us alive. He made us alive. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this story of your grace. May we be a people who are grateful this morning. May we be a people who do not take up the job of your Holy Spirit, but we take up the job of reconciliation in this world. In your name we pray, amen. Pastor.